open his word together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. And we don't ever want to take a day, whether the sun's shining and warm or whether it's raw and miserable, every day is a gift from you. And help us to learn to treasure each day as a gift and to see the opportunities that you have in each day to reveal yourself to us and not just to reveal yourself to us but also to use us for you have a purpose for each of our lives and Lord that purpose is to be walked out every day and it's filled with excitement when we learn to live our life that way and today right now Father for this part of this day we've come to sit here to worship you first of all and honor you and thank you for how good you've been to us and how gracious you are and how wonderful you are. And now, Father, we open the Word of God together and we're trusting the Spirit of God to take this Word and to breathe on it into our hearts. For your Word says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that you have prepared for those who love you. Well, we love you, Lord. And so that means there's things our eyes have not seen yet, our ears have not heard yet, and our hearts have not yet received yet. But your word goes on to say that your spirit has been given to us to reveal them to us, to search even the depths of your heart and to bring those secrets up and to make them known to us. We've not been given the spirit of the world, but we've been given the spirit that comes from you to reveal to us the things freely given to us by you. And Lord, our hearts are open today, our minds are open to receive what you have, not just to say to us, but what you have to show us in our heart. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's not so much information that you see, that you hear, but it's what you see. You guys need to know that that clock's not working, there you go, it's not working right, okay. Uh, that, that otherwise I'll just go on. <laughs> so you all have a stake in making sure the clock works. Um, uh, where was I? Okay. Uh, it's not so much what we understand, it's what we see. Seeing things is what changes us. Jesus, the pattern Jesus walked in is He would see things. He would see Jerusalem. He was moved with compassion and then He did something. In that case, he sent, the, he sent the disciples out. So there's things we need to see today, especially about God. As you can tell from the graphic that's up behind me, we're still in this series called First Things First. And what that's about, of course, is God is a God of order. And God who created this universe and designed this universe, designed it in a way that it, it is orderly in the way it's designed and it's orderly in the way it functions. Our bodies are orderly. That's why you can go to a doctor and they know where, the, the, the nurse knows where to stick the needle in. They know where to put the stethoscope because where your heart is in you was in the same patient before them and in the patients and the, whatever they studied in medical school, it's in the same place because it's an orderly body. In fact, there is a system which our scientists have now discovered called DNA, which is God's divine instruction for your body, where every cell, when it's created, where it's designed to go. I, I can't imagine how you can look at that and imagine there's not some intelligent mind. But, but I don't want to go there this morning because we'll get off from this, off from where we need to go. So God is a God of order, and as God has ordained a certain order for our lives, a priorities for our lives. And what we're learning is that if we get our lives in His order and our attitudes and, and priorities in His order, then He is able to work His blessing in our lives and through our lives, and He's able to work protection for us. The wonderful, beloved Psalm 91 says all these incredible promises of protection, but the key is He who dwells in the secret place 
Not who visits Sunday morning. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. So there's a condition preceding to that. And if we will learn to follow that, and then we learn that these priorities are more a matter of the heart than they are simply what we do outwardly. Israel was instructed with certain laws and rules, but the problem was they lived them out to the extent that they did them outwardly, but inwardly their hearts were far, grew far from God. And God's more concerned with our hearts because if our hearts are right, then the added actions will tend to follow our hearts. Doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but we'll follow our hearts. So we've learned that this is really all about the heart. So I don't want you listening to this and saying, well, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, but I've done all these things, Pastor, and it's not working. It's your heart attitudes, the priorities of our heart. And then we looked at, at what this mini series within this series called Where the Rubber Hits the Road. It's one thing to sit in church and say, Amen. Yes, that's what the Word of God says. Yes, I believe in that with all my heart. Yes, that's true. And then go out there and never change anything in my life. But there, there are certain areas of our life that reveal where our hearts are. And really what we're talking about is where God is in our heart. Because we looked at the beginning of all this priority that God communicated to His people, which was the very first of the Ten Commandments where God starts out in Exodus chapter 20 by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And a God is something that takes a place of priority in my heart that's above that place that God ordained, which is first. And so, it's, again, it's easy to sit in church and say, I love God with all my heart. I praise God. I worship God. I just want to, you know, God is first in my heart. But then there are issues in our life out there that we'll face tonight, this afternoon, tomorrow, that will begin to reveal where God really is in our heart. And God's not doing this in my life and in your life because He's angry at us, because God's known where He stands in our heart all along. And if God really wanted to get angry at us, what chance do we have? I mean, the psalmist said, you know, if God really were going to regard iniquity, we're, we're, we're a puddle of grease. I mean, we're all fried, you know, we're, we're done. So God's heart is not to condemn us. God's heart is not to make us feel guilty. God's heart is to help bring correction so that we'll bring, so to, to open our hearts to see what's really going on so that we can make that adjust. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take 14 years of fasting intercession. It just makes a simple adjustment of attitude in our heart. It's really easy to do once you realize what it is. And make that adjustment to put Him in that place that's first, and then God can begin to breathe His blessing in life, in our, heart, in our, in our hearts and then in our lives. So th these are two issues, and there are others we could talk about, but I find if we get these two right, then the rest are easier, the easy. And the first one we looked at are children, family. These are issues that are dear to our hearts because they're important to our hearts. And children are a gift from God, and they, they should be important to our but never more important than God. So when our children and their interests and activities start drawing us away from the house of God, then we've given them a place of priority above God. And the question we ask is, what are we teaching them about how important God is? See, we live our life not so much by what we say to our children, but by the example we live in front of them. And if they see a disconnect between what we say and what we do, they eliminate, after a certain age, they just tune you out. And that's what's one of the challenges of the young generation today, is they've seen, that have been raised in church, is they see us jump and shout on Sunday, and they see us moan and complain on Monday. 
They see a different life at home than we have in church, and that's hip- hypocrisy to them, and it is. And they just dis- they won't listen to anything we say. And the shame of that is, therefore, they're close to hearing what God has to say in church. They don't want anything to do with church. And there's a big movement now, a big trend among, among, among young people today to just not have formal church. They'll meet in homes because they're fed up with the hypocrisy that they see in church. And I'm not saying they're right, but we shouldn't, they should never have gotten to that place. And so we talked about children. And then last week we began to get into something that even can be dearer to us. It's still hard to get out. And it's money. And it's not the money itself. It's what the money represents. It's what the money can do. To some people, it's prestige. I've got more money than anybody else. To some people, it's security. If I've got enough money, then I'm going to be safe and secure. Well, you can't ever have enough money to be safe and secure. All you've got to do is look back to the stock market crash of 1929. People were jumping out of windows because they went from multi-millionaires to, to nothing overnight. And they had margin calls. So not only were nothing, but they were in debt so much that they were jumping out of windows. So, the, so it's, it's either the value of the money is, gives you some identity, that money gives you some sense of security, and there are many other things. And we began to look at those. And we began to go back last time, and I read, I'm just going to read this to you. We're not going to put it up there. I just want to read to you quickly Proverbs, which was our, Proverbs 3, which is our main thrust last week, which says, don't forget the law, the, the law, or don't forget the commandments or God's order, God's instructions, God's way of living our life. And we went to verse uh, 5, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and that's the issue. The issue is what's your heart trusting in. God wants our heart to trust in Him first. First of all, He's the most reliable thing you can trust in. Because everything else you can trust in can fail you. God cannot fail you. With all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. We talked about that. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That's make yourself aware of Him. And He will direct your paths. This is it. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you can understand everything. Submit to God's understanding. Submit to God's order, God's direction, God's instructions. Don't, this is what they did in the garden. They substituted their understanding for God's simple instruction. Don't eat it. <laughs> it was really clear. It says, for, uh, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So if you need health in your body and you need strength in your bones, then you need to be, not be wise in your own sight. And this is the one I want to Honor the Lord. This is part of the instruction. Honor the Lord with your possessions, your stuff, your things. With the first fruits of your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So God's saying there, I want to be first in your finances. So the very first fruits, the first things that profit that comes into your life, your business, your personal life, that you need to honor me with. And we looked at what the word honor meant last time. I'm not going to go back. But it's an attitude of esteeming and valuing something for what it is. So God's saying, I want to be esteemed and valued. I am your source of everything. Every breath you breathe, every beat of your heart, every penny that's ever come into your hands came from me. And when you honor me by bringing to me the first fruits of that, then that's how you honor me with it. And I want you to do this because I want to bless you. I want to fill up your bank account. I want to fill up your life. I want to bless you, but get things in priority in your heart so that I can do that. Now we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we're just going to read down through this. 
and they're going to put it up there, and I'm going to make some comments to you because this reveals God's heart. This is what I want you to see. God's heart and God's attitude. Deuteronomy 8. This is a rehearsal to the second generation. The first generation didn't get in the promised land because they disobeyed God because they trusted what they could see and they relied on what they understood and they reject God's direction for their lives and God was not happy. This is the next generation about to go in and everything's going to change. God has fed them for 40 years every morning with manna, dew that kind of falls from heaven and they would bake it into bread and God brought water out of a rock. So God has literally every day been their daily source of food. And if they tried to hoard it up to trust in what they could gather, it rotted. Except on the sixth day they gathered two days worth so that on the seventh day, the Sabbath, they could rest. And so now God's explaining to them what He did. Every commandment which I command you today, because He rehearsed them to them again, you must carefully observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which your fathers, which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember the Lord, your God, who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you. Now don't get hung up on that. You'll see in a minute. To test you. Don't get hung up on that. To know what was in your heart. This is what God's concerned with whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you and allowed you to go to hunger. He didn't starve them. He restricted their diet to only what He gave them. That might not hurt us to do, you know. He restricted their diet to only what He gave them. So every day for 40 years, they have to learn to trust God for their daily provision of food. Give us today our daily bread. They had to learn. And it took them 40 years of this exercise. Why does God want them to learn that? And I fed you with manna, which you did not know, and neither did your fathers know, that He might make you to know, because God had a lesson in this for them, He might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's saying, I wanted you to learn that man should not live by trust in bread alone, what he can see. But man needs to learn to live by, to trust in, and depend upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, every promise God makes, I want you to learn to trust every promise and that's the foundation of your security. If you don't know where you're going to eat tomorrow, then you don't feel very secure. But God's saying, I was training you to see if you dummies would get this. 40 years, it's always there. So that you would learn, you could trust my words. So that you could put all of your trust, trust the Lord with all your heart, put all of your trust in what I say, in my promises, my provision. Why? He goes on and says, your garments didn't wear out, verse 4, neither did your feet swell. This is 40 years, their garments didn't wear out. Therefore, you, verse 6, you shall keep 
the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways for the Lord your God is bringing you this is why He's training them He was training them because the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land a land that flows with brooks of water the land in Egypt didn't flow with brooks of water the land in the wilderness didn't flow with brooks of water and of fountains and of springs that flow out of the valleys and the hills a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates a land of olive oil and honey in other words the best food you can eat the land which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will in which you will lack nothing a land whose stones are iron that means you can use them for tools out of whose hills you can dig copper when you this is why verse 10 for when you have eaten and are full Then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes. In other words, not walking in his order, which I command you today. Lest verse 12, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell, God wanted them to have beautiful houses and dwell in them. He wanted their vats full, their barns overflowing. He wanted them to be blessed beyond recognition. In fact, God's original plan was that this nation would be so blessed because the reason each one of the reasons I believe he chose Palestine because at that time it was a crossroads of a major trade routes from the east to the west. And China at this time, the far east, was filled with all kinds of riches and 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 wealth and the traders coming back from there thinking they had been in a prosperous land would pass through this land and they would say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. This what we just came from is nothing compared to what we see here. Who is your god?" Ah, glad you asked. But God's saying to them, if I don't train you to trust me and rely on my words as your provision, then when you're blessed and when you're when you have plenty of provision and you're prosperous, you're going to take your eyes off of me as your source and begin to think this is something you did. Human nature hasn't changed. Verse 14 When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt who saved you from the house of bondage who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which the fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land there was no water and who brought water for you out of a flinty rock who led you fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you they might test you so he could do good to you in the end God saying I had to make an adjustment in you so that I could bless you and that's what God's saying to us today Not cuz he's angry at us. He's a father that wants to bless us. But he doesn't want the blessing to pull us away from him. Because then we're not blessed. Four of you agreed with that. That's good. <laughs> Verse 17. Then you shall say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained this wealth. I'm a self-made man. That's what happened in the garden. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for he who gives you look at this power, ability, wisdom, cunning ideas, discipline, training to get wealth. Why? That he may establish his covenant which he swore to his forefathers. We're going to stop there.
I went through all of that because I wanted you to see again God's heart. So when God's telling us, this is what I require of you, it's not because he's trying to punish us. It's not because he's trying to, it's because he's angry at us. He won't, knows what he wants to do for, uh, can we ask this question? How many of you, and be honest, to be honest, you need to ask yourself this question. How many of you really believe God's smarter than you? Now, he's watching, because he's not just looking at your hand in the air. He's looking at what you act and how you do. But we need to ask ourselves, do I really think that I'm smarter than God or that God's smarter than me? Because I've learned this, and I didn't learn it easily, and I still have to check myself. I'll never forget being sitting out in Tulsa. I'm sitting under a man... Who, who I'm sitting under man, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking of my doctorate degree in law. And the man I'm sitting under doesn't have a doctorate degree in anything. And I had an attitude in the beginning. First of all, I was mad at God for bringing us out there. I didn't know where it was. I still wouldn't figure it out where it was. And I'm sitting in class, and God begins to speak to me. And he said... He, he didn't say dummy, but he might as well have. He was kinder than that. He says, it dawned on you why I brought you out here to sit under him. He says, he doesn't know more law than you do. He doesn't have a higher education than you do. But there's things he knows you don't know. And unless you change your attitude, you're going to miss what you gave all that up for to come out here. It's your attitude that's going to keep you from receiving it. And you'll have come out here, sat here, given all that up and go back and missed what you came here for. I said, forgive me, Lord. I want to get everything you sent me out here for. And I've had to correct my attitude sometimes. Sometimes I can get into an intellectual pride. Well, I know this and I know that and da 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 And I've, I'm learning to ke- catch myself early now because it robs me. And we can do that with God. We can read the Word and say, yeah, I know it says that, but what I'm saying is, yeah... I know God thinks that. You understand this is not a debate with God? See, God's not looking for my opinion, and then it's because this is what we do. We hear what God has to say, and then we add our own two cents in it and figure out what's right. We figure out. We take God's counsel, which, by the way, it's not counsel, it's a commandment, and we take what we understand. And to, in our own mind, we bring them together to f- combine them and find out what's the best of both. That's called leaning to your own understanding. So when I, you know, say, how many of you believe that God's smarter than you? All of us in church will say yes, but what's really the attitude of my heart? Do I really believe that God's smarter than I am? He's been around a lot longer. He knows everything, not only that was and is, but he knows everything that's to come. Even the lottery number this week. <laughs> but he won't tell you or me. All right. Now, I, we've spent a lot of time on Okay. Then what we went to last week is because we, he's talking about here, uh, we, went, we, we went to the principle of firsts, because this is what we're talking about, first things first. The principle of first, 
And I took you to Exodus, I took you to, uh, to Exodus 13, verse 1 and 2. I think we have that to show you. Exodus 13, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses. This is on Mount Sinai. This, excuse me, this is not on Mount Sinai. This is, this is as they're about to go out of Egypt. Consecrate to me, that means set apart to me, all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, so the firstborn, whether it's the sheep or a goat or your child, whatever's first fruit in your life, man or beast, consecrate. That means set aside for me. Why? It is mine, God says. It is mine. And I took you back and showed you in Genesis 4 that God, the, the first children out of, out of Cain and Abel, that, that Cain was a farmer and he brought, he brought produce from his ground to give an offering to God. His brother was a, was a, was a herdsman and he took the firstborn of his flock and brought it to God. And God was pleased with what Abel brought, but not pleased with what the farmer, Cain, brought. And there's a lot of speculation out there, but I believe the key is in there. It doesn't say that Cain brought his first fruits. He brought some fruits. Abel brought the firstborn. Why is the firstborn so important? Because when you've got the firstborn, you don't have any assurance of a secondborn or a thirdborn. So you're taking everything that God's now given you, and you've given it back to Him first. It's the best. The first is the best. And my oldest son here says, Amen. <laughs> the first is the best. And God wants to be first in our heart. So when we give Him the first and the best that honors God. When we give Him leftovers, that's what the dog gets, isn't it? That's what rots in the back of the refrigerator, isn't it? But the first is the best. It's got the pleasant aroma to it. All right. So we saw that. And we said, I give you a bunch of other scriptures. Now we're going to go to Malachi 3. This is where we ended up last week. Malachi 3. Praise the Lord. Glory be to Jesus. We'll get this done. Malachi 3. I'll read down quickly through it. We're going to start in verse 8. Not Matthew, Malachi. Come on. Okay. Starts out, we're going to start out with this bold statement, will a man rob God? Because what they've asked is, what's going wrong? Why aren't things working? And God's dealing through this whole prophecy from Malachi. He says, you're doing outward things great, but you're hard at it. You're giving me your leftovers, he says at the beginning. You're bringing animals to sacrifice to me, but they're the damaged ones. They're the lame and the halt. You're giving me the ones that are of less value. You're not giving me your greatest value. You're not giving me your utmost for my highest. You're not giving me the best you have. So that's a reflection on where I stand in your heart. And now we get, they say, well, in what way have we done this? He said, well, a man robbed God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, and what have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Now, that's why I took you back and showed you in Exodus 13. He says, the first is mine. It belongs to me. And I explained to you last week, you cannot rob yourself. 
Robbery automatically means you're taking something that belongs to someone else. God is saying, what you've done is you've robbed me because you've taken what was mine and used it for yourself. Now, we're not getting into this series because the church is hurting financially. We're in great shape. We owe no debt. We have no debt. The church is blessed. It's for our sake. Because there's people struggling out there in areas of their life. And in many cases, it's because something's not in the right alignment. God wants to bless you. God wants to prosper you. God wants to protect you. But He's got to get us our attention to get our priorities of our heart right. And we're talking about a very sensitive one today. And I understand that. Yet you've robbed me. You say, what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. So you're cursed with a curse, verse 9. Not because God cursed you, because you stepped out from underneath my provision and protection. Therefore, the answer is to bring, verse 10, all the tithes into the storehouse, which is the local church, it's where you're fed from, that there may be food in my house. Try me and test me in this. Now God says, the only place where God says, test me, prove me, see if I won't do what you sa- I said. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour into you a blessing that there's not room enough to receive, fill your barns to overflowing. I want to bless you. But you're stopping me from blessing you. Verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. That he will destroy the, so he will not destroy the fruit of your ground or your vine. In other words, he, he, earlier in one of the other prophecies, it talks about, you know, you've got holes in your, in your wallet. You've got a hole, you're getting money in. And all, the more you get in, the more it goes out. And you're always scrambling. God does not want you making it from week to week. God wants to fulfill his covenant in you, in his church, in his people, in his family. But when we're not doing things his way, There's a hole in our pocket because we've opened a door. He says you're cursed with a curse. Not because God's cursed you, because you've stepped out from underneath the umbrella. You're going to get wet if it's raining. The umbrella's there. The protection is there. The provision is there. I almost had Pastor Michael's wife Maria preach this morning because she got off on tithing Wednesday night and she preached it. And I was wonderful because they've lived it. We live it. I'll rebuke the devil. You have to deal with the devil. He'll deal with the devil. Verse 12, and all the nations will cause you a delightsome land. All right. Now I want to get into this week, and we don't have a lot of time left. I want to get, all right, but pastor, that's the Old Testament. That's usually what people say. But pastor, that's the Old Testament. And and you're right, because Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. But it's the Old Covenant. Well, that's not true. Let's go to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. It was there this morning. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, everybody agree Genesis is before the law? Because the law is announced in Exodus. Genesis is before Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. All right, you're all with me? Okay. Genesis 14. Very quick background. Uh, Abraham, God brings Abraham out out of a pagan society into the land of Palestine. And God, he brought his, his nephew Lot with him. And they start prospering so much that they have to separate because their, their herdsmen they're, 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 and are, are beginning to fight with each other. And so they separate. And, and, and a lot, or Abraham, because he's a man of faith, says, you choose where you live and I'll live in what's left because he, knows God, he knew God was his source. And Lot chose the fertile valley. which He chose something he could see was prosperous. But what he didn't see is in the middle of this fertile valley is Sodom and Gomorrah and all kinds of rampant sin. 
And, he, and so he goes in there, but in the meantime, what happens is there's some armies that come in and they ravage the area and they take Lot and all his family and all his possessions and they, and they, they take them out. And Abraham gets word of that and so he goes after them and recovers them. He not only recovers them, but he recovers the other, other people that were down in that valley in Sodom and Gomorrah also and he brings them back. And on his way back, he brings all the spoils of what he's just conquered. And that's what the story is here. And we're going to pick up in, um, in verse 17. Now the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. So, so the king of Sodom, just, he's bringing back everything that was stolen from them. And the king's coming out to thank him. After his return from the d- defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings were with him, Verse 18, Then Melchizedek, I'll explain to you who he is in a minute, king of Salem brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, God hasn't changed his name yet, it's still Abram, of the God Most High, who belongs to the God Most High, who's the possessor of heaven and earth, who's the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands, and the last part of that verse says, And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe, a tenth of all. This is about 600 years before God gives Moses instructions for the tithing system under the law. Abram, in response to seeing Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of everything that's just come into his hands. He tithes to him. Now look why that's important. Let's go back to verse 18. Then Melchizedek, that doesn't mean much to us, but if you break his name down in the Hebrew, and we'll see that in a minute when we get into Hebrews, the first part of that name, Melchi, M-E-L-C-H-I, means king. Zedek comes from a root in Hebrew that means righteousness. Jehovah's canoe is one of God's names. I am the Lord, your righteousness. So his name in Hebrew means King of righteousness. King of righteousness. And his title is King of Salem. That's not the village city in Massachusetts. That is the English version of the Hebrew word shalom. We don't have time this morning to get into that word shalom. But that word means not just peace. It means protection, provision. It means health. It means wholeness. Whatever is not whole in you, he is the king, prince, that brings wholeness to you. If you've got three good tires and one flat tire, your tires are not whole. Now, isn't that interesting? So his name is King of Righteousness, King of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, talking about the Messiah, calls him the Prince of Peace. One of God's names is Jehovah Sitkanu. It goes on to say, we're going to go over to, um, let's go over now to Hebrews chapter 7. Quickly. Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Verse 1, for this Melchizedek, oh, by the way, 
the last verse of chapter 6, we're not going to put it up there, says that Christ was a forerunner, somebody that ran ahead of us, to enter into us, into the heaven for us, having become a high priest. So what this is talking about, this whole book is written to show that, that, that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And that he's just going through talking about the priestly system, and we'll continue to talk about the priestly system. And he says, but Jesus is the, a new high priest. He's the true high priest, and he's infinitely better than, than, than Aaron and Eli and the, other, the, the human high priests. Because this high priest has gone before us as a forerunner into the presence of God. And the last part of that verse says, according to the, he's a high priest according to the order or the establishment of Melchizedek. Not Aaron. Aaron was a different order. And now he's going to explain who this Melchizedek is. Verse chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, there it is again, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tithe, part of all being first translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. I read that just so you know I was right about what I read before. Okay. <laughs> Look at verse 3. We're going to add something else here. Without father or mother. He didn't, it's not that he didn't know his father and he didn't know his mother. He had no father and he had no mother. Let that sink in a little bit. And just in case you think it's some strange things... And without genealogy. So he had no grandfather, no grandmother, no great-grandfather. There was nobody to trace back. He just showed up. And being made like the Son of God, and I'll explain why he was like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, theologians disagree on who this Melchizedek is. Some of them say that he was, a, that he was a, a, a type of Christ. And others, and I tend to agree with them, say that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate is just a theological term, meaning before he was born in Bethlehem. You understand the Christ part of him, that's not his last name. The, the, the position always existed. He didn't come into existence in Mary's womb. The Word took flesh and began to dwell among us in Mary's womb. But He always existed. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him and through Him. But there are several places in the Old Testament where He appears. When the three Hebrew children are in the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow Instead, they'll burn instead of bowing. A fourth man showed up. Oh, that's a good sermon. We don't have time to do that this morning. A fourth man showed up. And Nebuchadnezzar, ungodly Nebuchadnezzar, not with the Spirit of God in him, was smart enough when he looked in there and said, Whoa! That fourth one looks like he's the Son of God. Why? Who else is going to be able to show up in a fiery furnace and not be burned and keep them from not being burned? So my personal belief is that this is literally Christ appeared to Abram when he's coming back. So what that means, and we're not going to go on and read it, because the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and what that means is Abram 
pay tithes to Christ. And he goes on to say, that's so much better because even Aaron, to whom the tithes under the law were brought, paid tithes. Because he was in, he was in Abram's seed, not yet born. So the high priest of the old covenant, through his, grand, grand, his grandfather, paid tithes to this higher priest this true high priest, as a sign of worship. That's what he's saying here. He acknowledged that he was the high priest because he worshipped him with the first fruits of what God had brought to him. So why would I want to come to Christ and say, I, I've got a loophole. I found the reason why I don't have to do this. See, if you're looking for why you have to or not have to, you're off already. It's an issue of the heart. That's why we spend time on that. The question is, do I really want to put him first in my heart? And emotions don't accomplish that. They're good, they're helpful, but emotions don't accomplish that. I'll share this little testimony because I've got a long testimony about our tithing and I shared a little bit last week about when I find out, found out about it and realized what it meant and gulped. My heart and my pen went right up to my throat. <laughs> and I'll still remember writing out, I did it by faith. I said, God, your word says so. I'm closing my eyes. I'm holding my breath, but I'm going to obey you. I'm just going to obey you by faith. I'm going to do it. And we've never looked back since then. There was a time, there have been several times when things got really, really tight and it wasn't because God failed us. I just made some stupid, prideful decisions. And you know, God will let you make stupid, prideful decisions. He'll be there to pick you up when you turn to Him and cry out like He was to Peter when He started sinking. He'll be there with you because He loves you. You're His child. And I remember I can still see myself driving that little Subaru car and saying, God, it's really tight. Would it be okay? Because we always tied off the gross. I don't want... God, is, would, it be really, would it be okay if for the next month or so that we just tithe off the net? And if God had said yes, that would have been fine. If God had said no, that would have been fine. God said the cruelest thing he could have said to me. He says, it's up to you. Oh, God, don't do that to me. Oh, Lord, no. No, 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 Lord. Just tell me what to do, because then it's your responsibility. <laughs> See, God, but God, He had a point to this. He was trying to show me something. Because I'm looking at the circumstances, just like many of you are saying, this doesn't make sense. It was one thing when I was in the big law firm making all kinds of money. It's another thing when we're literally holding our breath this week whether we can pay the rent next week. And i got to decide, what am I going to do with this first fruit, this tenth? What am I going to do? And the question was, am I going to take it back into my own hands now and figure my way out? Or do I believe God has an answer to this? And God says to me, I'm not going to tell you. It's up to you. See, God saw something I didn't see. And I, oh, God, don't do this to me. Oh, no, God. He says, what do you want to do? I said, God, I don't want to 
pull back. I don't want to pull back. And I didn't know that that was in my heart until he tested it. I don't want to pull back. And I could just feel God smile. And from that point, things began to turn around. Because I had my eyes on the circumstances. I don't know if we can afford this. I don't know if we can do I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Lean to my own understanding. And that moment in that car, I can still see myself trying to go up that hill. I said, God, I don't want to. And he said, that's fine, son. And things began to turn around because it's a heart issue. A heart issue. Do you know whatever your financial trouble is right now, do you have any idea how hard it would be for God to solve that problem? I mean, he made all this with his words. He could drop a million dollars on you before you walk out this door. There might be somebody in here with a million dollars for you. Ooh, really? Maybe I should have been friendlier this morning. Maybe I, should have, maybe I should have smiled back at that person. I don't know. You never know. You, you don't know who's sitting here. God does. <laughs> but that's trusting Him. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't know how you're going to do it. But He did it. I was, well, I can't go to that story. I'll tell you another time. Okay, praise God. Genesis 28, don't turn there. Uh, they can put it quickly up on the board. Uh, Jacob, Abram's grandson, on his way running away from trouble back home that he created. You don't need to turn there. Uh, he has an experience with God. God reveals himself and said, you've been trying to, you've been trying to, you've been trying to, uh, 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 control your life and manipulate people so that you could be taken care of. And he said, I made a covenant with you through your grandfather that I would take care of you. And he appears to him in a dream. And when Abram comes, and when Jacob comes out of this dream, he consecrates this place. It used to be the name of Luz. He turns it into the name of Bethel, which is the house of God. Puts a stone there that he slept on. And he said, God, if you will be God to me, this is his great statement, if you will be God to me and you will get me there back and get me back safely, then I, you're going to be, I'll let you be my God. I'm sure God was really blessed with that. But he'll meet you where you are. He'll meet you where you are. And he said, and I will then, I will for the rest of my life give you a tithe of everything I get. Abraham tithe to Jesus. His grandson tithe. Let's go now over to Matthew 23, and we have very little time left. Matthew 6, excuse me. I'll refer to, while you're going to Matthew 6, I'll tell you what Matthew 23 says. We've talked about this when Lafayette was here last year. Matthew um, 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they were so proud because they tithed on the herbs that they got. They tithed on the salt, they tithed on the pepper, they tithed on the cinnamon. I mean, that was cumin and other things, but to us, that's what it would be. So they bought a new, they got a new, you know, you think of salt, they, they took a tenth of it, and they gave it to the Lord. By the way, don't do that, please, we don't need your salt and your pepper. <laughs> and, and Jesus said, you know, you tithe all these things, and you think you're so good, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, of justice and of mercy. And he said, those are the things that you need to do, and not forget the other things. So Jesus endorses the tithe. He just says, there need, because you're doing this as a religious thing, you've, it hasn't touched your heart because it's not affecting how you see people and relate to people. So God's not first in your heart. Okay, now we're going to get down to this. Matthew chapter 6. 
verse 7. Very important. Excuse me, verse, chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. They trust in how they pray. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father, talks about a relationship, knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Talking, can I trust God with my finances? God knows what you need before you ask Him. So when you cry, God, I don't have the money for the rent, that's not when God finds out about it. He's been watching over your life and most likely trying to help you. But because we're running around like chickens with our head cut off looking at the circumstances, we're not open to hear what He has to say. You can't be living in your senses, dominated by your senses, and accurately hear what God's trying to say to you. That's what it means to be spirit-led, spirit-sensitive. Pastor Kurt talked about that earlier. Oh, Lord. Okay, now we're going to get down to verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither the moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Here's the principle. We've talked about this before. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. God wants your heart, and your heart follows your treasure, not the other way around. Your treasure doesn't follow your heart. Your heart follows your treasure, which means you can choose, and you have chosen, where your heart is. Where you put your treasure, your heart will follow it. Then verses 22 and 23, he talks about the purpose, that your heart is the part you seek God with. And he draws the comparison with your natural eyes. And he says, if your natural eye is healthy, then you can trust the light that's coming in. But if you have cataracts, you have astigmatism, you've got 2,700 vision, <laughs> then light may be getting in, but you can't take your glasses off to drive home with because you're not discerning clearly. And then he goes on to say, in the same way, your heart is for your soul and your spirit what your eye is for your body. It determines the truth that's getting in you. And then he's going to talk about what your heart's seeking after. That's what this whole discussion in here of Jesus is. What is your heart seeking after? Because what your heart is seeking after is determining what, uh, how much of God He can make Himself known to you. What God can do through you and in your life. Because that discernment only can come as your heart is pure and your, your, the eye of your soul is open. And that is what you're treasuring with your heart. So we're treasuring God first with our heart. Then we're wide open for God to begin to minister to us and to speak to us and to direct us. But when we're trusting ourselves, our own understanding, and what we have and can hold on to, then we're literally closing our eyes to God and what He wants to do in our lives. It doesn't mean He can't get through at times. He can't protect you. But you're not getting His best. You're not getting His best. And then we'll end with the Scriptures. Now He's going to bring it into a practice. You sit in church and say, well, yes, I, I'm, I'm there. Pastor, I'm right there. I'm, I'm right there. I'm, I'm there, boy. I, 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 God's first in my heart. I tithe, God's first in my heart. Verse 25, Jesus is now going to get to where the rubber hits the road. Therefore I say to you, therefore means it's connected with what he just said. Do not worry. Huh? 
let's, let's just end here. We all go home happy. Do not worry. Do, do, do not. Do not. Do not worry. Do not worry. Except, you don't know my situation, Pastor. No, he says, do. But remember, remember, we looked over in verse 8. He says, he already knows your needs. So God knows your situation. And God says, do not worry. So you may say, well, Pastor, you don't I know, I may not understand. But God knows. And the God that knows says, do not worry. I wish it said something else, like do not steal. Do not, you know, lie. Do not. But worry's not sin. Yes, it is. Why? Of what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what your body put, put on. What, what am I going to, are my needs going to be taken care of? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now he's really going to humble us. He says, do you know that the birds are smarter than you are? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying, oh, here, here it goes. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit, one, one, one yardstick to your life, to your stature? What's worry ever brought you but an ulcer? What's worry ever done for you except stop you from being able to hear from God? What's worry ever done from you except open the door to the devil? Ooh. Did he say that? Because what is worry? It's faith in what the devil tells you is going to happen. Worry and fear are the same principle of faith. Faith is trusting in God's word. Fear and worry is trusting in the lies of the devil. Verse 28, so why are you worrying about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Now he's going to make us feel stupider than the flowers. <laughs> How they grow. They don't toil or they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Well, we're waiting to see this array yet this season, but it's coming. Now look at this. This is now he's going to nail it down. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more, will he not much more clothe you, his children? Yes. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you who are not really trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Oh, you who are trusting more in what things look like in your own ability to get yourself out of it. Oh, you of little faith. And it all comes down to this principle that we're about to see. Therefore, verse 31, do not worry saying. You notice when we're worrying, we speak, which is the worst thing you can do because now you're calling it into existence, what you're worrying about. 
Do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 32. Look at this. For after all these things, the Gentiles, look at that, seek. Remember I told you that the I that Jesus talked about back in verse 20 and 20, 21 22, the I is to the body what your heart is to your spirit and your soul. And when your eye is looking at something, it's seeking it. It's, it's determining it. It's setting its focus on something. And if your eye is diseased, then it can't see clearly what to focus on. The point here is in the same way, your heart has a focus. Your heart has a direction and a focus to it. And the word for that that's used is seeking. What is your heart seeking after? Seeking means longing for, trusting in, going after. What your heart is invested in. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. After all these things, the Gentiles seek. Does that mean it's wrong to get a, buy new clothes? That's not what he said. Does that mean it's wrong to not dress nights and dress, dress up? No, that's not. It's what your heart's seeking after. It's what your trust is in. Because when he says, after all these things, the Gentiles seek. You've got to understand what that means. That's referring to people that have no covenant relationship with God. He talked about them earlier. He says, don't you understand? The Gentiles have to trust in how they pray. Why? Because they have no relationship with God. So they've got to trust in what they do. But you're not like them. You do have a covenant with God. God is your Father. Because the next thing you're going to say, pray this way. Our Father. What does a father do? A father takes care of his children, provides for his children. Why? Because he loves them. He wants to see them do well. He wants to see them prosper, taken care of and protected. And he Goes as all kinds of examples that if we being evil now to do that for our children, how much more does he want to do better for us? Amen. But the Gentiles don't have that privilege. They have no relationship with God as Father. He's their creator, but he's not a relationship with them as a father. So he's saying to the children, don't be like those people that don't have a father. Don't act like the orphans in the world. You have a father who loves you, who wants to provide for you beyond anything you can dream. But here's the key. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. What do we think he's like as a father? There was a book written a number of years ago about called Absent Fathers. Fathers Missing. Do we think he's a missing father? No. Do we think he just sits up there and watches you struggle and says, no. boy, oh, I really feel for them. My goodness, you see what they're going through? Jesus, my goodness. Wow. Hope they make it. <laughs> we'll be here waiting for them. Oh, we got streets of gold and we got all kinds of beautiful things. Boy, in the sweet by and by, when they get here, they're going to be so glad they went through those tough times because they're going, we got waiting for them. What kind of father's that? Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things, but here it is, verse 33. Comes, everything comes down to this. But seek, seek, seek with your heart. This is what it's all about. Seek, F-I-R-S-T. Seek first. You can seek after other things, but make sure you're seeking 
first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Make sure He is first in your heart. And all these things shall be added unto you. So not only do you get the things, you get God with it. Woo! God wants to bless you. That's why we went through all through Deuteronomy 2, verse 8, chapter 8. God wants to bless you, but He doesn't want that bless. Here's a good example. If you're struggling in your finances right now, and you're, you're tempted, as we all are when we go through tight times, to hold on tight. If you're tempted to do that, you're worrying. And if you're worrying, then that issue, those things will take a place in your heart above God. Pull you away from Him. And there's some people that does it. They say, well, in order to get by, i got to work three jobs so I can't come to church on Sunday. That's, there may be times that has to happen for seasons, but that's never God's will. When He tells us to forsake not the assembling together, why would God provide something for you and your only way to make it is to, is to forsake the assembling? Why would God bring blessings into your life? There are people, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and God gave them a child when they couldn't have a child. And this is happened over and over again. Always faithful in church. But the child begins to grow up. And first of all, they don't dare bring the child in here because they might get something here. So they stay home with a precious little child. And the next thing you know, they start missing and missing and missing. And the child starts growing up. And they got activities that the child needs to go to. So they put the child above God, above assembling together. And now the very thing that God gave them now becomes first in their life, above God. God's not angry but what they're doing is getting things out of order. God brings blessings. So if you're worrying to the point that you're not willing to tithe, if you're worrying to the point where you're not willing to put God first, you're already in trouble because God's not first. Remember, I'm not, there's no condemnation. This. All we got to do is make an adjustment. Make an adjustment by faith. Make an, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, everything you need in abundance will be added unto you. When we made that decision 36, 37 years ago, as I said, we, I was making more money than we spent by far. But we went from that circumstances to no job for a year and a half. Nothing. Not only we had no job, we, we, we left for Oklahoma with two kids and got out there and not too long after that we had four. <laughs> two at once. No job, no health insurance, nothing. But whatever we got, we tithed. And God brought us around. That's a long story. We continue to tithe. Because by tithing, it was not an issue of the money. It was, God, I'm trusting you. In fact, I learned that when things are tight, I need to trust you more when things are tight. I, I need to trust you because I can't get myself out of this. And I could tell you story after story of how God blessed us and prospered. Maria was telling stories about how God's blessed them and prospered. And there are many people here that could give testimonies on that. We're going to end here. Because it's time to end this part of it because there's some things we need to go on to. First things first. God first in every area of my life, especially areas where my heart's involved. Family. Time. There are other things we could have gone into. Time. What do you spend your time in? What's the most valuable thing in your life? It's where you spend your money. It's where you spend your time. The things that you have limited resources to. God wants to be first so that he can bless you. He could bless you now. But if he blessed you now, 
that blessing might pull you away from Him. And the greatest blessing is Him. Let's close our eyes for a moment. I just want, this will take a moment for us to just quietly, in our own heart, just begin to examine what we've heard today and what the Spirit of God may be saying to us. And while they're doing it, Father, I just pray that you would strengthen our hearts, not just to hear what we've heard, but to leave here today with a decision we've made. Maybe we have to go home and talk to our spouse because we need to be in agreement about this. And if our spouse is not in agreement, we'll pray, Father, and you'll show us what to do. But Lord, we, this is not about money. This is about you in our lives, giving you a place in our lives that, first of all, belongs to you, but that you want so that you can do all, all the wonderful things in our life that you want to do. Father, take us by the hand now. You meet us right where we are. You'll do that. And you'll take us by the hand to bring us to that place that you know is that place of blessing. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.